0: our readers tonight and after about three hours of thrashing out this difficult problem we came up with the alphabet. So um, our first reader will be Jervis Anderson. Uh, He is on the staff of New Yorker magazine. He is author of This Was Harlem, A Cultural Portrait, 1900-1950 and is also author of uh, A. Philip Randolph, A Biographical Portrait and now Jervis Anderson. Thank you.
1: By birth, I I cannot really claim to be um, a New York writer, but since I've lived here for Nearly 30 years, and uh, a good deal of my work has been done um, about life in the city. I, I gladly accept the designation. I'll be reading um, excerpts from a much longer uh, profile that appeared in the New Yorker in uh, April of 1986. I've, in the interest of um, coherence, I've made uh, a few changes and so this uh, shortened version will be uh, slightly different from the original. Some years ago, I had occasion to attend a conference on the east side of Manhattan which had been called by a group of concerned citizens to discuss the plight of Haitian refugees in New York. The conference had already started when I arrived. A film on the subject was being shown, and in the darkened room, I found a seat in the last row next to a man in clerical garb. When the film ended and the lights came up, the clergyman leaned over and introduced himself. My name is Paul Moore, he said, and then volunteered to brief me on the part of the proceedings I had missed. I was surprised by so cordial, informal, and helpful a greeting from someone of his position, for I instantly recognized his name as that of the Episcopal Bishop of New York, the Right Reverend Portmore, Jr., as he's formally addressed. I was also surprised that he, the highest ranking Episcopalian in the Diocese of New York was attending such a meeting, that he seemed so absorbed by the problem it was called to discuss, and that a man of his conspicuous civic stature was sitting so contentedly at the back of the room while far lesser lights had arranged themselves prominently up front. I noticed later when he got up to say a word on behalf of the refugees, that he was was of uncommon physical stature as well. At six feet four inches, with graying hair and a craggly, patrician, middle-aged face, he was easily both the tallest and the most distinguished looking figure in the room. He, as I gathered much later when I made his acquaintance again, would have wondered at my surprise for after all, he was merely being himself. But I had never met a bishop before, and from the example of the only bishop I had ever observed, I hadn't expected someone of Moore's rank to behave so unassumingly. I had grown up on the island of Jamaica when it was still an English colony, and during the stage of my boyhood, the Anglican bishop of Jamaica was a Cambridge-educated gentleman named William G. Hardy who kept a cool distance from what he might have called the common life of a predominantly black society. When most ordinary folks caught glimpses of the Bishop of Jamaica, it was usually from photographs in the island's only daily newspaper, The Gleaner. Pictures of him chatting with dignitaries of his own status, presiding at important civic and religious functions, attending garden parties on gracious suburban lawns, or sipping tea of an afternoon with nicely dressed ladies wearing broad-brimmed hats. A meeting on the plight of poor refugees, or the poor of any sort, wasn't likely to have found a place on Bishop Hardy's calendar. And if a member of his staff had alerted him for the seriousness of that omission, he might simply have designated a lowly vicar to attend in his stead. Perhaps only if the Holy Spirit had intervened to whisper stern orders in the bishop's ear, would he have gone to such a meeting himself. He would have arrived in a chauffeur-driven limousine He would have been received with a deference reserved for a person of the station. He would have gone in and blessed the gathering with an opening prayer. And then he would have asked to be excused before the urgent proletarian issues began to be aired. In Manhattan, therefore, I wasn't at all prepared for an encounter such as the one I had with Bishop Moore, a prince of the Church of England in America, who had turned out for a meeting on the plight of poor black aliens, and had act, acted in so friendly and unpretentious a manner. The novelist, uh, Flannery Connor once said this to a friend, scratch an Episcopalian and you're allowed to find most anything. <laughs> We're not to imagine that Mr. Connor was speaking in praise of Episcopalians. It is more likely that, as an orthodox, dogmatic, and sharp-tongued Catholic, she was poking a bit of fun at the varieties of Episcopalian identity and worship, ranging from High Church through Broad Church down to Low Church. In other words, her position, from her position as a Catholic purist, Miss O'Connor seemed to have been asking, "What is an Episcopalian?" However that may be, Paul Moore, Jr. is a rare and striking example of the particular Episcopalian strain to which he belongs. Although he was raised in the high church, educated at the exclusive St. Paul's School and later at Yale, is in no way strange from the broad and the low branches of the Episcopal family. If he had been scratched while growing up in Marstown, New Jersey, the son and grandson of millionaires, few would have found anything to, suge- to suggest that his future lay in the priesthood of his or any other church. And almost no one would have predicted for him the sort of career he has had as a clergyman. That career has involved him so deeply and widely with social issues and humane struggles that his detractors and admirers have described him in such terms as radical, naive, idealistic, uncompromising, fool, decent, trendy, ultra-liberal, courageous, and a soldier of God. Today, one of his admirers, a retired bishop, expresses his surprised recognition of the fact that the Episcopal Church is still vital enough and unpredictable enough to produce a Paul Moore Jr. as Bishop of New York. The nature and style of Moore's controversial priesthood recalls the story of the Reverend Dr. Walter Bowie as maverick and Episcopal aristocrat as any who was preached in Manhattan. In 1923, Dr. Bowie, just past 40, and still a rising star of the clergy, arrived from Richmond, Virginia, to assume the rectorship of Grace Episcopal Church on Broadway at 10th Street. Superficially, the union of such a church and such a rector seemed perfect. Grace, then a temple of the rich and conservative, was one of the elite parishes of the New York Diocese. Dr. Bowie was himself a Harvard man. In Richmond, he had been rector of the illustrious St. Paul's Church, where Robert E. Lee and Jefferson Davis once worshiped. He was the son of an impeccably aristocratic Virginia family. And as such, he sprang from a region where in the early 1600s, the first roots of Anglicanism had been planted in America. But as Grace Church and Dr. Bowie were soon to discover, their union was incompatible on one crucial ground, that of social outlook and ideas. After listening to some of Bowie's early sermons, more liberal and politically progressive than any ever before delivered under the roof of that edifice, the Grace parishioners came to the unhappy conclusion that they had made a serious mistake in hiring him, (laughs) that they had invited quite the wrong man to serve as their spiritual leader. It was indeed a mistake. Apparently, when the Grace vestrymen had interviewed Dr. Bowie for the position in New York, they had neglected to investigate the history and nature of his political opinions feeling perhaps that no one so well qualified by lineage and upbringing could hold views that were unacceptable to persons of his own class and background. Had they not overlooked the need for a political inquiry, they would certainly have learned that Dr. Bowie was a flaming social idealist, that he had preached on behalf of female suffrage and had denounced the treatment of blacks as shameful that he was neither a comforter of the rich nor a defender of the profit system. In fact, his patrician congregation in Richmond had found such examples of his social conscience to be quite troubling. They had put up with him, however, partly because they admired the sheer brilliance of his oratory and partly because he, he was, after all, a product of their own vine and fig tree. Bowie had scarcely settled into the new pulpit at Broadway and 10th Street when he became aware of the coldness with which the grace parishioners were receiving his weekly liberal homilies. This came as a surprise to him. In the great and heterogeneous metropolis of New York, he hadn't expected his social gospel to be so unappealing. He had hoped that, at the very least, he would be recognized for the artery at which he excelled. So it was, at any rate, that a stalemate of mutual disaffection came to mark the relationship between the politically irreverent Dr. Bowie and the genteel conservatives who made up his congregation at Grace. Yet neither the minister nor the church took any steps to dissolve their unsatisfactory union. Astonishingly, their relationship continued for nearly two decades. It isn't clear why so loveless an embrace, if embrace it might be called, should have lasted so long. Perhaps being well born and bred, Dr. Bowie could not bring himself to abandon his appointment and thus break a pact he had made with the vestry of his fellow gentlemen. In that case, the sentiment may have been mutual. Not unlike Dr. Bowie's former parishioners in Virginia, the vestrymen on Broadway may have decided to live with the mistake they'd made in hiring him, on the ground, no doubt, that whatever his heresies were, he was, after all, a member of their own class. As a result, on Sunday after Sunday, The Grace Congregation sat and listened impassively to the sermons of poor Dr. Bowie as they described him among themselves. They pretended not to hear a liberal word he spoke, which was a remarkable accomplishment since Bowie was noted not only for his brilliance as an orator, but also for the loudness of his performance. This exercise in polite disdain was to be more costly to Dr. Bowie than to his listeners. After a number of years, the conspiracy of deafness that confronted him on Sundays had serious consequences for his health. He developed a nervous ailment that gradually robbed him of his great vocal powers. While the cause of his ailment was at first baffling to Dr. Bowie, it was by no means a mystery to his audience. They saw it as a form of divine punishment. Recalling one of his early sermons, in which he had raised questions about the virgin birth, Dr. Bowie's parishioners interpreted his vocal impotence as a fitting and timely punishment from God. But that was not the kind of diagnosis in which a man like Bowie could readily believe. And when he consulted more reliable opinion, that of the medical profession, his ailment was judged as having stemmed from shock. As one commentator later explained, Bowie had been a popular member of the Virginia community in which he was born and raised and the sudden sharp encounter with a frosty congregation in New York had been too much for his sensitive nature. According to the commentator, Bowie was unnerved by the suspicion that his parishioners at Grace were firmly of the belief that God is a banker, an Episcopalian, and a Republican. But despite ideological resemblances, Paul Moore's experience as a clergyman in New York differs in some notable respects from Dr. Bowie's. At the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divine and in the National House of Episcopal Bishops, Moore has been far more radical in word and deed than Bowie ever was, even if he's not yet in record as raising questions about the virgin birth he sees his ministry as one that requires him to stand out there on the public issues. And for the past three decades, before and after his accession to the bishop's throne, he has been an activist in virtually every movement for social and political justice, whether on behalf of peace, of racial minorities, of women, or of the poor and powerless. His engagement with such struggles has made him unpopular, not only with many in his own church and his own social class, but also with others in the city and the nation at large who deplore or distrust the passion of his public convictions. A number of Moore's public convictions have been shaped by his affection for New York and by his sense of what an urban ministry requires. Why I like New York, he has said, is why I like my job. If if you're interested in the life of the urban church, this is the place to be. You're turned on by the feel of the city, its variety, its vitality, its mixture of glory and poverty. I know damn well that New York isn't that easy a city to live in, It depends so much on who you are, where you are, and what your job is. But you could say, if you wanted to be cosmic about it, that New York, more than any other city, has everything in it. That's where I think the church should be active. And I'm lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of the city through my different parishes, with their ethnic, social, and economic diversity. End of quote. Although Moore was born and raised in New Jersey, his family has had more than a century of roots in New York. And the priests who welcomed his election as bishop nearly 20 years ago saw him as just the man for this city. One of those priests has said, however, quote, of course, Paul and I don't see eye to eye on the subject of cities. I think that the city is the work of the devil. Paul thinks it's the work of God. He thinks that scripture begins in the Garden of Eden and ends in the city. I don't see it that way. I think that the Almighty made a mistake. Other public convictions of the bishop, especially the ones that have made him unpopular, are explained by the Reverend Edward West, a retired canon of the cathedral over which, the cathedral over which Moore presides. Canon West has said, Paul Moore is, in the strict sense of the word, a radical. And yet, that only means that he's terribly conservative, for that is what radical truly means, running by the rules. The things that make him take stands, things that are frequently unpopular with his own friends or people with whom he was raised, reflects his conformity to the rules of his ethical conduct, or rather influences, I beg your pardon. It's not because he likes being off base. He doesn't like being disliked at all. His point is like the one that Martin Luther made at the Deity of Worms. Here I stand, I can do no other. He's a totally convinced Christian and a highly orthodox one, unquote. Nor despite his many critics at the cathedral on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, has the Bishop of New York encountered the near-solid resistance that Dr. Bowie once met at Grace Church on Broadway. At St. John the Divine and within the diocese he leads, Moore commands a sizable division of social and political partisans. And those among his parishioners who remain unalterably cool to his activism and his message have had no noticeable effect either on his nerves or on his voice. He can't be shocked or intimidated by the chilliness of wealthy East Coast Episcopalians. He happens to be one of them. He may have renounced a number of their inherited resources and attitudes, but he's still able, when it pleases him or pleases them, to move in their company with inherited ease and equality. He can't be impressed by any upper-class East Coast congregation whose firm belief it might be that God is a banker, an Episcopalian, and a Republican. Members of his family have been connected with banking for generations, and he has studied a few of them closely enough to recognize that God isn't necessarily revealed in the form of great wealth. Having been an Episcopalian all his life, he has witnessed some of the ungodly sins and failings of the breed. And had it ever occurred to him that God might indeed be Republican, he would surely not have forsaken the party of his ancestry and converted himself into a liberal democrat. Uh, This is, I think, somewhat shorter than the time I was allowed, so I generously donate the rest of it to my fellow. uh,
0: you. Next we have Louis Auchincloss, who is a novelist, social historian, and recently retired Wall Street lawyer. Fellow Passengers is to be published this spring, and is his 41st bur- book. Some of his other books are The Rector of Justin and the Embezzler. Mr. Auchincloss.
2: Let me read you a short story that, uh, from my book that appeared long ago, Powers of Attorney, called The Single Reader, which I have reduced to exactly 15 minutes. None of his law partners or clients, or even the friends who considered themselves closest to him, knew the secret of Morris Madison. They saw the tall, thin, smooth, urbane tax expert. They heard the soft, precise voice, the slow, clear articulation. They marveled at the ease with which he would explain the thorniest tax principle and at the profundity of his general information, from politics to social gossip. Morris, they all agreed, was not only the ideal extra man for the grandest dinner party, he was the perfect companion for the Canadian fishing trip. But they had no idea that he was a dedicated man. They suspected all kinds of lacks in his life besides the obvious ones of a wife and children. And in the free fashion of a psychiatrically-minded era, they attributed his reserve and good manners to every kind of frustration and insecurity. (laughs) But none of them suspected that he had a passion. He kept a diary. He had started it 25 years before when his wife had left him a horsey country girl who would never relax her attitude that the city was full of snobs and toadies, of whom her husband was one of the worst. At first the diary was naturally enough, primarily, the vehicle of his resentments. His circle of acquaintance appeared in it in all the banality of their unsolicited communication. With huge heads and eyes and bigger mouths, their talk was lampooned rather than reported. But on a reading at the end of its first year, Madison had been struck by the fact that the most illuminating passages were those where he had dryly set down scenes and conversations that had not seemed of particular interest at the time. He now became more selective in his entries. His ears were alerted for the right confidence, the right complaint, even the right phrase to convey the essential quality of the speaker. And as his people began to breathe and chatter like themselves in his pages, he realized the first great joy of recreation. He began to raise his sights. He decided that he wanted to paint a picture of life in New York for a subsequent generation. He began to note the raising of buildings and the erection of new ones. He watched ticker tape parades and dined in the newest restaurants. He marked fashions and fads and even attended fires. He read exhaustively in the great diarists of the past, Pepys, Evelyn, Saint Seymour, and paid many visits to the New York Historical Society to pore over the unpublished pages of Philip Philippone. His conservative friends were surprised to find themselves deserted for Elsa Maxwell's frolicsome balls, as was Café Society in turn to find itself abandoned for the dullest Bar Association dinners. Madison would leave relieve a reception of the Archdiocese to go to a late party at Mrs. Vanderbilt's and slip away from there to a gathering at Sardis. He was widely regarded as a snob, but it was rare for two people to agree on what kind. <laughs> Inevitably, he came to think of his people as they would one day appear in his diary. If a judge was rude to him while he was arguing a case, if a government official was quixotic or arbitrary, Madison would reflect with a, inner a smile that they were marring their portraits for posterity. Yet he took great pains to avoid the prejudices which he suspected even in his idol Saint-Simon. Most of the people whom he knew, like many of Saint-Simon's, would survive to posterity only in his own unrebuttable pages. If he succumbed to the temptation of touching them up, of making them wittier or nastier or bigger or smaller than they were, nobody in a hundred years would be any the wiser, but his work would have become fiction, and he had no intention of being a mere novelist. When he was 53, the great set of red Morocco on the shelves of his cedar closet totaled more volumes than the years of his age, for there were sometimes three or four to a single year. The diary was now insatiable. It not only demanded its daily edition, it demanded footnotes, appendices, even illustrations. Madison found that he spent as much time editing it as he did writing it, but the former task had the advantage of requiring a constant rereading of his work, a constant reabsorbing of his own glowing, crowded, changing picture of the city now a Bruegel, now a Hogarth, now a quiet, still Vermeer. Was it not as near as you might ever come to the joys of having an audience? But he was to have one. An audience, anyway, of one. Mrs. Starr was a widow without children or other visible appendages, a few years younger than himself, with a small but adequate income, a trim and well-clad figure, who managed for the proverbially unwanted extra woman to get herself asked out nearly as widely as Madison himself. When he took her home one night after a party, she asked him up to her apartment for a drink. It was the kind of invitation that as a prudent single man, he ordinarily declined. But now he hesitated. Oh, do come up, Maurice, she urged him. You and I meet and talk so often. I love it, of course. But what do we ever really say? What do any of us ever really say in social life? Couldn't we try to talk for once, just you and me? We could try. In our tiny white-and-gold living room, he took a long draft of whiskey and relaxed. It's true that people talk banality at parties, he agreed. They like it that way. They think any real communication would be too much work. And then they complain of loneliness. He snorted in derision. Are you never lonely? I think I can honestly say I'm not. Aurelia laughed. You sound very superior. With whom do you communicate, or don't you? I communicate with the future. When she paused to consider this, he hoped that she would not try too hard to be sympathetic. But she was simplicity itself. And how do you do that? By keeping a diary or a journal. I'm not sure which you'd call it. I can see the advantage to you, but how does the poor future get its word in? (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to ask you. How can I arrange to let it? She mused. Does he go far back, your diary? 25 years. My goodness, and it's complete as you can't imagine. Oh, she seemed to be looking through him, her lips apart as if she could dimly make out those red volumes in the cedar chest. And now you want someone to see it for an opinion. Do you want an historian or a professor of literature? Hardly. I think I just want someone to tell me if it's... He paused to swallow and moisten his lips. Well, if it's real, I mean if it really exists, I sometimes wonder, but I think I've found the person who could tell me. Do you suspect who it is, Aurelia? Oh, of course I do, but I'm doubling back and forth in my tracks, I'm scared stiff, why should I be the one so honored? Because you never appear in it. He had not realized that this was so until the second before he said it. I don't mean by that that there's nothing to say about you. I mean that I must have always planned that you should be my reader. But I can't, she protested. It's not simply that I'm scared of such a responsibility. I think you're making a mistake. Once it's shared, it isn't really a diary anymore. There wouldn't still be that special intimacy between you and it. Be careful how you play with that. Oh, but I know, he explained. This has been no light decision, believe me. You should be very proud. My diary and I are choosing. I am proud, dear Morris, but I'm not foolhardy. She did, however, agree to read it. And the next Friday night, when they were to meet as usual at their restaurant, Madison, who arrived first, ordered a cocktail to dull the edge of his now almost unbearable excitement. As he was raising the glass to his lips, however, he saw Aurelia crossing the room towards their table, carrying the three red volumes which he had sent to her. He noted with instant dismay that she looked pale and haggard, as if she had not slept in two nights, and her eyes avoided his as she slipped into his seat. She pushed the books towards him without a word, and he placed them carefully on the bench beside him. Is something wrong? Oh, Morris, my friend, I don't know how to tell you. Please order me a drink. No, let me have yours. She took his glass and drank from it quickly. "'I can't stay for dinner. I'm all done in. I'm going to bed. "'I only came to return the books. I know how precious they are. "'Are you ill? No, just tired. "'Was my diary so tedious?' "'She took another sip of his cocktail. "'I'll tell you what. I'll have my little say, and then I'll be off.' "'She paused, and when she spoke again, there was a tremble of deep feeling in her voice.' "'Dear Morris, I hope that you and I will always be the best of friends, "'but I could never even think of marrying you now.' "'Because of the diary? "'Because of the diary. "'Is it so terrible?' "'She seemed to consider this. "'It's a monster. "'Though I suppose there's nothing wrong with a monster "'if you don't happen to be on its bill of fare. "'And you are? "'Oh, my dear, you should know that. "'Don't you send a tribute?' Of men and maidens each year to the labyrinth no i'm serious morris you've created a robot it's grown and grown until you can no longer control it and now it's rampaging the countryside i dared to face it i tried to give you time to get away i was even able to stand it off for a while but now my stones are all gone and goliath is stalking toward me how fantastical you are really or oh, really i wouldn't have thought it of you You've seen for yourself that the entries stop with our friendship. If anyone's won, it's you. But I tell you, I'm out of ammunition, she exclaimed shrilly. I've had to take to my heels while I can, for don't think Goliath wouldn't get his revenge for all those missing entries. I should be made his slave like you. I should be harnessed and put to work. After all, he has missed the woman's touch, hasn't he? The woman's point of view? Isn't that the one thing it needs? Didn't peeps have a wife? Wasn't there a Mrs. Saint-Simon? There was a duchess, Morris said dryly. (laughs) Exactly. And your diary wants a Mrs. Madison, but it won't be me. And if you're wise, Morris, it won't be anyone. You and your diary can be happy together, but I beg of you, don't listen to it when it points its long, inky finger at another human being. (laughs) Madison was beginning to wonder, if she was sober, you must think be demented. Well, I don't suppose you burned down New York to make a page for your diary. After all, you might burn the diary with it. But no, you have copies in the vault, don't you? Here she placed a rueful hand on his, forgive me, my dear, for being so overwrought. Let me slip away now and get a good night's sleep. I'll take a pill, and next week we'll talk on the telephone to see if we can't put things back on a nice old friendly basis. Aurelia! But she was gone. She was hurrying across the room behind the tables, and he had actually to run to catch up with her, clutching his three volumes. Aurelia, he cried in a tone that made her turn and stare. Wait! What is it, Molly? What more is there to say? You haven't told me what you think of my diary. She seemed not to comprehend. I haven't. I mean what you think of it as a diary. Oh, she treated this almost as irrelevant. But it's magnificent, of course. You know that. It's just what I don't know. It's just what I've spent the past several months trying to find out. Oh, my dear, she murmured, shaking her head sadly. "'You have nothing to worry about there. "'It's luminous. It's pulsating. "'It's unbelievable, really. "'I doubt if there's ever been anything like it. it. "'Poor old saint Simon, "'His nose will be out of joint. "'Oh, yes, Maurice, your diary is peerless.' "'She turned again to go out the door, and he let her go. "'For a moment he stood there dazed, stock still by the checkroom, "'until the head-waiter asked him if he wished to dine alone.' He shook his head quickly and went out to the street to hail a taxi. It was only 7.30. He had still time to dine at the Century. When he got there, he hurried to the third floor and glanced, as he always did, through the oval window to see who was sitting at the members' table. There was an empty seat between Raymond Massey and Ed Murrow. Opposite, he noted the great square, noble face and shaggy head of Judge Leonard Hand. He must have just finished one of his famous anecdotes, for Madison heard the sputter of laughter around his end of the table, It would be a good night. As he glided forward to take that empty seat, he knew that he was a perfectly happy man.
0: Next we have Nicolasa Moore, who is a New York-Puerto Rican writer and the author of six books, including El Bronx, Remembered, a Novella and Stories, and In Nova, New York.
3: Uh, trying to figure out um, what story I'd read tonight, I decided to um, read a story from my book In Nueva York, which means in New York, and um, the story is in in two parts, and uh, what I've done is I will read the first part, and then just go into the second part, because for the sake of brevity, I won't be able to finish the story, so you'll get an idea of where the second part is going. And uh, this is a collection of short stories that are interrelated, but each story can stand on its own. This one is called The Operation. Angie and Rick Matilla had moved into their small apartment in the rent control tenement on the Lower East Side four years ago in order to save money. They planned someday to buy their own home out in the suburbs of, of Queens or Brooklyn. Rick held down a full-time job as an assistant production manager in a food processing plant. At night he attended a community college where he was completing his coursework toward an associate degree in marketing. They had decided not to have a larger family until they could give Jenny a better life in a safer neighborhood. In the meantime they guarded her carefully and it was only during this past summer that she had been allowed to play downstairs in the street by herself and then it was only in front of the building and for, for short periods of, at a time. Summer was over and school had just reopened. The days were still mild and it remained light outside until early evening. This afternoon, a day early in September, Angie had given her daughter Jenny permission to play outdoors. Angie stopped preparing supper and glanced once more over at the electric clock placed on the wall over the refrigerator. It read 5.30, and she began to seriously worry. Jenny was never this late, never. Angie went into the living room and dialed Sandy's number. That's where she must be, playing at Sandy's, and she just forgot to tell me, that's all. Hello, Sandy. This is Mrs. Matilla, Jenny's mother. Is Jenny there? She's not. Did she go to your house today, this afternoon? No, not at all? Okay. She's probably playing outside because it's still so light out and forgot, to t- forgot the time. Wait, wait a minute. Sandy, Sandy, are you there? Listen, honey, if she should come up to your house, please tell her to get home right away, that her mother said so. Okay, thank you. Grabbing her keys, Angie locked the front door and went down the narrow stairway and out into the street. It was supper time. Most people were indoors. There were no children about. Angie walked along the block, carefully searching for Jenny on both sides of the parked cars and, and in the doorways of the tenements. She reached the corner and looked out at the busy avenue. Trucks and cars sped by. As usual at this time of day, traffic was heavy. Jenny wouldn't come this far. She knew better. Angie sighed, turning back. She approached a group of boys carrying baseball equipment. They were returning home from the schoolyard, commenting and laughing good-naturedly at the game they had just lost. Men. What a beating we took, Gonyo man. It was your fault, lefty. You lost the ball, man. Que pendejo. You let it drop right out of your fucking... Oops, excuse me. A boy of about 14 looked at Angie. It's okay, Angie smiled. Listen, I want to ask you, boy, something. You just came back from the schoolyard, right? Did you see a little girl around here? She's seven years old, wearing a pair of dark blue dungarees and a red sweater. The boys looked at each other and shrugged. She has light brown hair, cut very short. Was she alone, one of the boys asked? I think so, but I'm not so sure. Uh, She had a ball. She might have been playing by herself. I ain't seen nobody around here like that in this schoolyard. The boy turned to his friends. Right? Everybody agreed. Wait a minute, another boy said. We seen some girls, remember? They was playing rope over by the other end of the schoolyard. Go on. This lady said she's seven, stupid. Them girls were way older, like 12 and 13 i a Maria man, bendito lefty. You don't know the difference between girls 7 and 13. No wonder we lost the game. You ought to lunch, friend. The boys began to laugh. Sorry, lady, we ain't seen her. Thanks. Angie went back to her building. Bef- before going in, decided to look inside Rudy's luncheonette. The large clock in the window read 10 past 6. The place was busy. Angie looked around, not really expecting to find Jenny. Angie, can I help you? Rudy called over the counter. I'm looking for my little girl, Jenny. Have you seen her? Did she come in here today? No, I don't think so. I didn't see her. Wait a minute. Rudy turned to his wife. Lali, you seen Jenny? You know, Angie's girl. Lali stopped working, walked over to Angie. Of course I know Jenny. How are you, Angie? No, not today. I didn't see her come in. Is something wrong? No, it's all right. She went out to play and isn't back yet. She's probably over at a friend's house and forgot to tell me. It's okay. Mira, Angie, if I see her, I tell her to go upstairs right away. No te apures, don't worry. Lali continued quickly, responding to the look of concern on Angie's face. I keep an eye outside, and if I see Jenny walking or playing, I make sure to send her home. Thanks a lot, Lali, I appreciate it. Angie checked the street one more time. Jenny, Jenny, she called out. Maybe she's upstairs in the hallway waiting for me. That's it, that's it. Angie raced up the four flights of stairs. Angie raced up the four flights of steps until she reached the floor. The the hallway was empty. She looked up at the skylight on the top landing. Jenny? Are you there, Jenny? She went up the last flight of steps leading to the entrance out to the rooftop. She can't be up here. No way is she allowed on the roof. She knows that. But maybe she's waiting for me. While I was looking for her, she was looking for me. Angie pushed open the heavy metal door and stepped out onto the rooftop. It was still light and she could see clearly that there was no one in sight. Her eyes roamed over the empty rooftops, occasionally stopping at a pigeon coop. Off in the distance, she saw the silhouettes of two tiny figures leaning against the edge of a roof. For a moment, Angie wanted to call out to them. Then she realized that they were on another street, and they could hardly see her, much less hear her. Taking a deep breath, Angie swallowed, trying to control her her frustration at the feeling of hopelessness that was beginning to choke her. A little calmer now, she went back down to her apartment. Of course. She went to visit her other friend, Caroline. That's it. She's such good friends with Caroline Thomas. Angie found the number and dialed. Hello? Mrs. Thomas? This is Angie Matila, Jenny's mother. I'm just fine. How are you? Good. Listen, I'm hoping I'm not disturbing your supper. Good. I'm calling to see if my Jenny is there. Have you seen her today? You haven't. Okay, well, it's it's just. it's just that she's never, ever been late. When I give her a time to come home, you know what I mean? Like she's always home right on time. No, she came home after school, all right. I always pick her up after three. Yes, after work. I get off at two. I work over at the May's department store on 14th Street. Yes, that's right. I took that part-time job so I could be home for Jenny. Really? Your cousin works What? Yes, I've seen Carolyn's brother... Picking her up, too. What? I know. The papers are full of that story. What's that? Well, after she had her after-school snack, she asked me to go out to play for a little while. It's still so light up, so I said yes. You know, she's cooped up in school all day, then here in the apartment, so I figured she could go out for a little while. But that was at four. Yes, I know it's only been a little over two hours, but I told her to be home before five. She knows how to tell time. Yes, she does. She has a way of checking. You see, there's a luncheonette downstairs. Yes, Rudy's, and it has a big clock in the window. No, no, it's working all right. I was just downstairs looking for Jenny, and I checked it myself. I know you would tell me if she was going over to your house. Yes, yes, yes. It's just that Jenny only has two really close girlfriends, Sandy Garcia and Caroline. Right, Sandy is a nice girl. Yes, I know it's still early. Sure, she'll probably turn up any minute, out of breath, telling me she's sorry. She forgot the time. Would you? Thanks, I'd appreciate it. Yes, that would be a big help. And tell your boy she's wearing dark blue dungarees and a red sweater. Sure, I know. Even though you're a few blocks away, sometimes kids wander off. Thanks, thank you very much, Mrs. Thomas. I will, I'll let you know. I won't worry, goodbye. Angie hung up the phone and caught sight of the newspaper on the coffee table. She felt slightly nauseated and closed her eyes. Where's Rick? He should be home by now. God, today is not his night to go straight to school, is it? She ran into the kitchen and checked the calendar. Thank God he's home tonight, Angie sighed with relief. She glanced at the clock, 6.40. Walking back into the living room, Angie picked up the morning copy of the daily news. When Rick comes home, he'll know what to do. Reluctantly, she turned to the page, th- to page three and reread the feature story. Third child to be found dead. Another missing child's battered and sexually abused body was finally located in a vacant lot along the South Street docks early this morning. The body of 7-year-old Nina Gomez, missing for 5 days, was found early this morning by officers William Pat Harrison, Patrick Jefferson. Nina, a resident of the Lower East Side, was lured away, police believe, by an old man who offered her candy. Police trace the crime to the public school that Nina Gomez attended. From information alleged, by alleged From information given by several possible witnesses, the alleged killer is described as a white male with gray hair, about 60 years of age, medium height. Angie closed her eyes and hiccuped. A burning sensation choked her as she tried to clear her throat. Why did I let her go out? After reading this story, I must have been out of my mind. Dear God, what should I do? Rick, where are you? Angie called out and began to sob quietly. She heard the front door open and jumped up. Rick, what's the matter, Angie? You crying? I did a terrible thing, God. Angie controlled her sobs. I let Jenny go out to play. Now she's missing. She hasn't come home. What? Jenny's disappeared. It took a while before Rick managed to calm Angie. There's no sense in carrying on like this. It's not your fault, Angie. Come on, look. We're wasting time. Let me go out and look for her. She's probably playing somewheres. Rick, I I looked all over. I tell you, I'm so scared. The newspapers and everything. Rick, should we call the police? First, let me go out and I'll check at the building. Let me do that. You stay here just in case she comes home or there's a call. Call? What call? From who? Telling us what? Angie, please. Maybe Jenny's lost. She could have wandered off someplace and not know how to get home. She might tell somebody where she lives, give them our phone number. Please, stay put. I'll be right back. Rick 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 went to each and every apartment trying not to let his mounting fear take over his sense of reason. When the last family said that they had not seen Jenny, Rick decided there was only one thing to do. They had better call the police right away. Two patrolmen arrived and began to question them. They asked for a photo of Jenny for the newspapers. Nothing to worry about, they assured Angie and Rick. It was just in case they couldn't find Jenny before tomorrow. They were also told that if they didn't mind, a detective would like to come over later in the evening to question them some more. After the police left, Angie and Rick wondered if they should call their families to let them know or wait. Perhaps Jenny might come home after all. This is the second part. At four o'clock that afternoon, Jenny went downstairs to play. She bounced her small ball against the stoop steps. Then she stopped and looked for someone to play with.
0: Next we have Grace Paley, who is the author of The Little Disturbances of Man and Enormous Changes at the Last Minute, and most recently, Later the Same Day.
4: I can't see you, but I hope you can see me. <laughs> I, I assume you're all there. <laughs> I'm going to uh, read a, a couple of stories, quite short ones. First, I'll look at my watch. <coughs> uh, sorry I just I had this here and I lost it Um, this story is called Politics and uh A group of mothers from our neighborhood went downtown to the Board of Estimate hearing and sang a song. They had contributed the facts and the tunes, but the idea for that kind of political action came from the clever head of a media man floating on the ebb tide of our lower west side culture because of the housing shortage. (coughs) He was from the far middle plains, and he loved our well-known tribal organization. He said it was the coming thing. Oh, how he loved our old moldy pot, New York. He was also clean-cut and attractive. For that reason, the first mother stood up straight when the clerk called her name. She smiled, said excuse me, jammed past the knees of her neighbors, and walked proudly down the aisle of the hearing room. Then she sang, according to some sad melody learned in her mother's kitchen, the following lament requesting better playground facilities. Oh, 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 will someone please put a high fence up around the children's playground? They are playing a game and have only one more year of childhood. Won't the city come or their daddies to keep the bums and the tramps out of the yard? They are too little now to have the old men wagging their crick pricks at them or feeling their knees and saying to them, Sweethearts, sweethearts, sweetheart, can't the cardinal keep all these creeps out? She bowed her head and stepped back modestly to allow the recitative for which all the women rose wherever in the hearing room they happened to be. They said a lovely statement in chorus. The junkies with smiles can be stopped by intelligent reorganization of government functions. (laughs) Then she stepped forward once more embarrassed before the high municipal podiums and continued to sing. Please, Mr. Mayor, there's a girl without any pants on. They're babies, so help me. The commies just walk in the gate and put shit in the sand. Raising her arms toward the off-white ceiling of our lovely city hall, she cried out, Stuff them on a freight train to Brooklyn. Your Honor, put up a fence where mothers, oh what, will become of the children. No one on the board of estimate, including the mayor, was unimpressed. <laughs> After the reiteration of the fifth singer, all the officials said so, murmuring ah and oh in a kind of startled arpeggio, rounding round lasting maybe three minutes. The controller, who was a famous financial nag, said, yes, 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 in this case, yes, a high 16.8 fence can be put up at once, can be expedited, why not? Then and there, he picked up the phone and called parks, traffic, and child welfare. All were agreeable when they heard his strict voice and temperate language. By noon the next day, the fence was up. Later that night, an hour or so past moonlight, a young tactical patrol force cop snipped a good-sized hole in the fence for two reasons. His first reason was public. The Big Brothers, a baseball team of young priests who absolutely required exercise, always played at night. They needed entrance and egress. His other reason was personal. There were 11 bats locked up in the locker room. These were, to his little group, an esoteric essential. He, in fact, had already gathered them into his arms like stalks of pussy willow and loaded them into a waiting paddy wagon. He had returned for half a dozen catcher's mitts when a young woman reporter from the Lower West Side Sun noticed him in the locker room. (coughs) She asked, because she was trained in the disciplines of curiosity followed by intelligent inquiry, what he was doing there. He replied, a police force stripped of its power and shorn by vengeful politicians of the respect do it from the citizenry will arm itself as best it can. <laughs> he had a copy of Camus the Rebel in his inside pocket, which he showed her for identification purposes. He had mild gray eyes, short eyelashes, a smooth and perfect countenance, white gloves of linen barely smudged, and was able, therefore, while waiting among the basketballs for apprehun- apprehension, by precinct cops to inject her with two sons, one Irish and one Italian, who sang to her in dialect all her life. Now, this next story, equally short, is called The Northeast Playground. It has a little bit of archaic language in it, being a few years old. Uh, When I went to the playground in the afternoon, I met 11 unwed mothers on welfare. Only four of them were whores. The rest of them were unwed on principle or because some creep had ditched them. (laughs) The babies were all under one year old, very funny and lovable. When the mothers stuck them in the sandbox, they took up the whole little desert, throwing sand and screeching. A kid with a father at home, acknowledging and willing to support, couldn't get a wet toehold. How come you're all here, I asked. By accident, said the first. A couple of us happened to meet, said the second, liked one another, and introduced friends. We're like a special interest group, said a third. That was Janice, a political woman, conscious of power structure and power itself. A fourth came into the playground with 11 Dixie cups, chocolate and vanilla. She passed them around. What a wonderful, calm unity in this group. When I was a mother of babies in this very same park, we were not so unified and often quarreled, accusing other children of unhealthy aggression or excessive timidity. He's a ruined wreck, we'd say, about some streaky squeaker about two years old. No hope, his eyelids droop. Look how he hangs on to his little armored prick. Of course, said Janice, if you want to see a beauty, there's Claude, Lenny's baby. The doll, said Janice, who had a perfectly good baby of her own in a sling across her chest, asleep in the heat of her protection. Claude was beautiful. He was bouncing on Lenny's lap. He was dark brown, though she was white. Beautiful kid, I said. Lenny is very unusual, said Janice. She's from Brighton Beach, a street whore, despite her age, weight, and religion. He's not my baby, said Lenny. Some dude owed me, and he couldn't pay, so he gave me the first little bastard he had. A.D.C. Honey, I just stay home now like a mama bear and look at TV. I don't turn a trick a week. He takes all my time, my Claudie. Don't you, you little pancake. Eat your ice cream, Claudie. The sun is douching it away. The sixth and seventh unwed mothers were twin sisters who had always dressed alike. The eighth and ninth were whores and junkies and watched each other's babies when working or flying. They were very handsome women with other four- and five-year-old children in the child care center, and their baby girls sat in ribbons and white voile and white high-vive veneer and chrome-imported carriages. They never let the kids play in the sand. They were disgusted to see them get dirty or wet and gave them hell when they did. The girls who were unwed on principle, that included Janice and the twins, considered rigidity but not hopeless because of the extenuating environment. The 10th and 11th appeared depressed. They had been ditched, and it kept them from total enjoyment of the babies, though they clutched the little butterballs to their hearts or flew into the sandbox at the call of a whimper, hollering, What? What? Who? Who? Who took your shovel? Claude! Lenny! Claude! He's a real boy, said Lenny. These two didn't like to be on welfare at all. They were embarrassed, but not to the point of rudeness to their friends, who weren't. Still, every now and then, they'd make ironic remarks. They were young and very pretty, the way almost all young girls tend to be these days and would never be ditched again, probably. I'd try to tell them this, and they replied, thanks. One ironic remark they'd make was, my mother says don't feel bad, Allison's a love child. The mother was accepting and advanced, but very poor. The afternoon I visited, I asked one or two simple questions and made a statement. I asked, wouldn't it be better if you mixed in with the other mothers and babies who are really a very friendly bunch? They said no. I asked, What do you think this ghettoization will do to your children? They smiled proudly. Then I stated, In a way, it was like this when my children were little babies. The ladies who once wore I like Ike buttons sat on the south side of the sandbox. And the rest of us who were revisionist communists and revisionist I And revisionist Zionist registered Democrats sat on the north side. (laughs) In response to my statement, no kidding, most of them said. Beat it, said Janice. Now, I'll read you another two-page story. This one is called Living. Two weeks before Christmas, Ellen called me and said, Faith, I'm dying. That week, I was dying, too. After we talked, I felt worse. I left the kids alone and ran down to the corner for a quick sip among living creatures. But Julie's and all the other bars were full of men and women gulping a hot whiskey before hustling off to make love. People require strengthening before the acts of life. I drank a little California Mountain Red at home and thought, why not? Wherever you turn, someone is shouting, give me liberty or I give you death. Perfectly sensible, thing-owning, church-fearing neighbors flopped their hands over their ears at the sound of a siren to keep fallout from taking hold of their internal organs. You have to be cockeyed to love and blind in order to look out the window at your own ice-cold street. But I really was dying. I was bleeding. The doctor said, you can't bleed forever. Either you run out of blood or you stop. No one bleeds forever. (laughs) It seemed I was going to bleed forever. When Ellen called to say she was dying, I said this clear sentence, please, I'm dying too, Ellen. Then she said, Faithy, I didn't know. She said, What'll we do about the kids? Who'll take care of them? I'm too scared to think. I was frightened, too. But I only wanted the kids to stay out of the bathroom. I didn't worry about them. I worried about me. They were noisy. They came home from school too early. They made a racket. I may have another couple of months, Ellen said. The doctor said he never saw anyone with so little will to live. I don't want to live, he thinks. But, Faithy, I do, I do. It's just I'm scared. I could hardly take my mind off this blood. Its hurry to leave me was draining the red out from under my eyelids and the sunburn off my cheeks. It was all rising from my cold toes to find the quickest way out. Life isn't that great, Ellen, I said. We've had nothing but crummy days and crummy guys and no money and broke all the time and cockroaches and nothing to do on Sunday but take the kids to Central Park and row on that lousy lake. What's so great, Ellen? What's the big loss? Live a couple more years, see the kids and the whole cruddy thing, every cheese hole in the world go up in heat, blast fire waves. I want to see it all, Ellen said. I felt a great gob making its dizzy exit. Can't talk, I said. I think I'm fainting. Around the holly season, I began to dry up. My sister took the kids for a while so I could stay home quietly making hemoglobin, red corpuscles, etc., with no interruption. I was in such first-class shape by New Year's, I nearly got knocked up again. My little boys came home. They were tall and handsome. Three weeks after Christmas, Ellen died. At her funeral at that very neat church on the Bowery, her son took a minute out of crying to tell me, don't worry, Faith, my mother made sure of everything. She took care of me from her job. The man came and said so. Oh, shall I adopt you anyway, I asked, wondering if he said yes, Where the money, the room, another ten minutes of good nights, where they would all come from. He was a little older than my kids. He would soon need a good encyclopedia and a chemistry set. Listen, Billy, tell me the truth. Should I adopt you? He stopped all his tears. Oh, thanks. No, I have an uncle in Springfield. I'm going to him. I'll have it okay. It's the country. I have cousins there. Well, I said, relieved, I just love you, Billy. You're the most wonderful boy. Ellen must be so proud of you. He stepped away and said, she's not anything of anything faith. Then he went to Springfield. I don't think I'll see him again. But I often longed to talk to Ellen, with whom? After all, I have done a million things in these scary private years. We drove the kids up every damn rock in Central Park. On Easter Sunday, we pasted white doves on blue posters and prayed on 8th Street for peace. Then we were tired and screamed at the kids. The boys were babies then. For a joke, we stapled their snowsuits to our skirts. And in a rage of slavery, every Saturday for weeks, we marched across the bridges that connect Manhattan to the world. We shared apartments, jobs, and stuck-up studs. And then, two weeks before last Christmas, we were dying.
0: we have Harvey Shapiro, who is deputy editor of the New York Times Magazine, and more important for tonight is the author of seven books, the latest of which is National Cold Storage Company, New and Selected Poems.
5: I'll read nine uh, short poems uh, from the National Cold Storage Company book. And they measure 15 minutes. And they're all more or less about New York. Riding westward. It's holiday night, and crazy Jews are on the road, finished with fasting and high on prayer. On either side of the Long Island Expressway, the lights go spinning like the twin ends of my talus. I hope I can make it to Utopia Parkway, where my father lies at the end of his road and then home to Brooklyn. Jews, departure from the law is equivalent to death. Shades, we greet each other darkly on the Long Island Expressway where I say my own prayers for the dead, crowded in Queens, remembered in Queens, as far away as Brooklyn. Cemeteries break against the city like seas, a white froth of tombstones, or like schools of herring, still desperate to escape the angel of death. Entering the city, you have to say memorial prayers as he slides overhead, looking something like my father approaching the ark as the gates close on the Day of Atonement, here in the car and in Queens and in Brooklyn. Through the boroughs. I hear the music from the street every night, sequestered at my desk, my luminous hand finding the dark words, hard, very hard. And the music from car radios is so effortless. And so I strive to join my music to that music so that the air will carry my voice down the block, across the bridge, through the burrows where people I love can hear my voice, saying to them, through the music that their lives are speaking to them now, as mine to me. Brooklyn Heights. I'm on Water Street in Brooklyn, between the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. The high charge of their traffic filling the empty street. Abandoned warehouses on either side. In the shadowed doorways, shades of Melville and Murder Incorporated. Five o'clock October light. Jets and gulls in the fleecy sky. Climbing the hill to Columbia Heights, I turned to see the cordage of the Brooklyn Bridge and behind it The Battle Gray, Manhattan. This room shelved high with books echoes with my midnights. Pages of useless lines swim in it. Only now and then a voice cuts through saying something right. No sound is dissonant which tells of life. The gaudy ensigns of this life flash in the streets. A December light whipped by wind, is at the windows. Even now the English poets are in the street, Keats and Coleridge on Hicks Street, heading for the bridge. Swayed aloft there, the lower bay before them, they can bring me back my city, line by line. Hmm. Pastime. I believe we came together out of ignorance, not love, both being shy and hunted in the city, in the hot summer, touching each other, amazed at how love could come like a waterfall with frightening force and bruising sleep, waking at noon, touching each other for direction, out of ignorance, not love, the title poem of National Cold Storage National Cold Storage Company is a National Cold Storage Company, and it's a warehouse near the Brooklyn Bridge that I've lived close to for about 30 years. And I wrote this poem some years ago. It was after the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy, when for the first time it seemed to me that that warehouse was where American history got dumped. The National Cold Storage Company contains more things than you can dream of. Hard by the Brooklyn Bridge it stands, in a litter of freight cars, tugs to one side, the other the traffic of the Long Island Expressway. I myself have dropped into it in seven years, midnight tossings, plans for escape, the shakes, Add this to the national total, Grant's tomb, the Civil War, Arlington, the young president dead. Above the warehouse and beneath the stars, the poets creep on the harp of the bridge. But see, they fall into the National Cold Storage Company one by one. The wind off the river is too cold. Or the time's too rough, or the bridge is not a harp at all, or maybe a monstrous birth inside the warehouse must be fed by everything ships, poems, stars, all the years of our lives. cityscape. The self-hurt, humiliated, has no recourse but to the world. Dawn's light on the streets, though the buildings are still dark. Sparrows nesting in the hollow crossbar of the traffic light. A beak and head emerge, and then the line of flight as if city air could sustain flight. June, and the hum of air conditioners, fills the side streets. A poster in a Madison Avenue boutique says poverty sucks. The crowd coming out of the Whitney opening believe it. So well kept, they shine along the pavement. Gulls as far inland as Fifth Avenue. After the garbage truck has stopped grinding the world, the rhetoric inside my head Catches and begins to work. My eye on the cityscape. Nervous, alert as I move through the day. No part of the surface is neutral ground. The intensity. When you think over what she said, and what you said, the spaces begin to get larger until they modulate into silence. You stand there staring at each other with no balloons floating the words, no captions, only the intensity of sight, making a language to scare anyone interested in communication or believing that two human beings can connect. Which is why my happiness on the subway brings me back to myself after last night's trouble. The body warmth, the distended with sleep faces, the memories of Hart Crane riding this line, tunneling this way under the river that is east. Next time, when I beg for something, will you recognize need, stop talking, stop closing the door? Tied like that, this, is the title is from an old Louis Armstrong, Earl Father Hines record. 78, I had it in 78. <laughs> Who, can Who can refuse to live his own life? A spray of leaves in the lamplight. A saxophone on the dark street like the 40s. In those days for the price of a pitcher of beer you could spend Saturday afternoon listening to the exchanges, the deep guttural stirrings of so much light and dark. At the corner of, the da- at the corner of 52nd, at the break, at the downbeat, we saw Billy draped in fur, gardenia in her hair. Bless you children, she said. Whatever became of the music I drank to at Nick's bar, Kiwi Russell's clarinet jammed into Brunus's belly, shaking like his sister Kate. Hunkering down into my own story, I begin to see it all close up, just under the pavement. And The last poem, a very short one to end with called The End. Imagine your own death. I'm wearing my father's gray tweed overcoat. I've just had a corned beef sandwich on 47th Street. I asked for lean, and it came fat. I should have sent it back when it hits me in the chest. Thank you very much.
0: Tom Wolfe is the author of a novel called The Bonfire of Vanities. Other books, nonfiction, include The Right Stuff, Radical Chic and Mau Mauing the Flack Catchers, and The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test.
6: like to read a uh, brief passage from The Bonfire of the Vanities that many of my confidants and a couple of editors uh, suggested that I not include in the novel on the grounds that it did nothing to further the plot uh, and did not enlarge our comprehension of any of the major uh, characters. But I couldn't resist including it all the same because it, to my way of thinking, was such a perfect example of a kind of eccentric desperation uh, that makes up so much of New York life, uh, some of it farcical and some of it uh, a bit sad. And this is a—it was my attempt to present a, I think, what is the least known part of the criminal justice process, namely the calendar session. Uh, I'll never forget a young ad- assistant district attorney in the Bronx telling me, he said, why is it that every time I turn on t- a television set and watch a courtroom drama, a trial is in progress? said, what do trials have to do with anything? He said, here in the Bronx, we have 40,000 criminal arrests every year. They yield 7,000 felony indictments. Uh, We have the capacity with 40 courtrooms running uh, full tilt five days a week to have 500 trials in the course of a year. So that leaves 6,500 cases to be disposed of, either through dismissals and not even a grotesque cynic uh, would, go, would, would sit around dismissing cases all day long or plea, plea bargains uh, and suddenly it dawned on me and, and I think it would on anybody who, who sits in on, on the criminal courts in this city for very long that the great work of the, of the system goes on in these calendar sessions in this strange ceremony known as plea bargaining and I, had, I, mean, I don't pretend that my reading is all embracing but I had never seen a plea bargaining session uh, in a calendar Uh, part of our criminal courts uh, uh, described so I decided to take the plunge Um, the door to the courtroom swung open and in walked an old man with a large florid rather lordly head debonair that was the word or at least he was debonair by the standards of the Bronx County Courthouse he wore a navy blue double breasted pinstripe suit, a white shirt with a starch collar and a dark red necktie His black hair, which was thin and had the inky dullness of a dye job, was combed straight back and plastered down on his skull. He had an old-fashioned pencil mustache, creating a sharp black line on either side of the gully under his nose. Larry Kramer, who was standing near the clerk's desk, looked up and stared. He knew the man. There was something charming, no brave, about his style. At the same time, it made you shiver. This man had once been, as Kramer now was, an assistant district attorney. Bing, bing, bing. Thirty years had gone by. And here he was finishing out his career in private practice, representing these poor incompetents, including the 18 Bs, the ones who couldn't afford lawyers. Bing, bing, bing. Not a very long time, 30 years. Larry Creamer wasn't the only one who stopped and stared. The man's entrance was an event. His chin was the shape of a melon. He held it cocked up at a self-satisfied angle as if he were a boulevardier, as if the Grand Concourse could still be called a boulevard. Mr. Sonnenberg, the old lawyer... Uh, uh, Looked towards Judge Kovetsky. "'He seemed pleasantly surprised "'that his arrival should occasion such a hearty greeting. "'We called your case five minutes ago.' (laughs) "'I apologize, Your Honor,' said Sonnenberg, uh, uh, "'sauntering up to the defendant's desk. "'He swung his great chin upward "'in an elegant arc toward the judge. "'I was held over in Part 62 by Judge Melnick. "'What are you doing with a case in Part 62 "'when you knew this court was putting you "'at the top of the calendar as a personal accommodation? "'Your client, Mr. Lockwood, has a job, as I recall.' That's correct, Your Honor, but I was assured... Your client is here. I know. He's waiting for you. I'm aware of that, Your Honor, but I had no idea that Judge Melnick... All right, Mr. Sonnenberg, are you ready to proceed now? Yes, Your Honor. Kavitsky had the clerk, Brucielli, recall recall the case. The black youth, Lockwood, got up from the spectator section and came pimp-rolling up to the defendant's desk beside Sonnenberg. It soon became apparent that the purpose of this hearing was to allow Lockwood to plead guilty to the charge, which was armed robbery... In return for a light sentence, two to six years, offered by the district attorney's office. But Lockwood wasn't going for it. All that Sonnenberg could do was reiterate his client's plea of not guilty. Kavitsky said, Mr. Sonnenberg, would you approach the bench, please? And Mr. Torres? Torres was the assistant district attorney on the case. He was short and quite fat, even though he was barely 30 years old. He had the sort of mustache that young lawyers and doctors wear to try to look older and graver. As Sonnenberg drew near, Kavitsky said in an amiable conversational tone, You look look just like David Niven today, Mr. Sonnenberg. Oh, no, Judge, said Sonnenberg. David Niven, I'm not. William Powell, maybe, but not David Niven. (laughs) William Powell, you're dating yourself, Mr. Sonnenberg. You're not that old, are you? Kavitsky turned to Torres and said, The next thing we know, Mr. Sonnenberg is going to be leaving us for the Sun Belt. He's gonna be down there in a condominium and he'll and he'll have to and all he'll have to worry about is getting to the shopping mall in town for the early bird special at Denny's. He won't even have to think about getting up in the morning and making pleas in part sixty in the Bronx. Listen, Judge, I swear. Mr. Sonnenberg, you know Mr. Torres? Oh yes. Well, Mr. Torres understands about condominiums and early bird specials. He's half a yiddler himself. Yeah? Sonnenberg didn't know whether he was supposed to appear pleased or what. Yeah, he's half a Puerto Rican and half a yiddler, right, Mr. Torres? Torres smiled and shrugged, trying to appear appropriately amused. So he used his Yiddisha cop and applied for a minority scholarship to law school, said Kavitsky. His Yiddish half applied for a minority scholarship for his Puerto Rican half. Is that one world or isn't it? It's using your fucking cop anyway. Kavitsky looked at Sonnenberg until he smiled, and then he looked at Torres until he smiled. And then Kavitsky beamed at both of them. Why had he turned so jolly all of a sudden? Kramer looked over at the defendant, Lockwood. He was standing at the defendant's table and staring at this jolly threesome. What must be going through his mind? His fingertips rested on the table, and his chest seemed to have caved in. His eyes, his eyes were the eyes of the hunted in the night. He stared at the spectacle of his lawyer, grinning and chuckling with the judge and the prosecutor. There he was, his white lawyer, smiling and jabbering with the white judge and with the white fat prick who was uh, trying to put him away. Sonnenberg and Torres were both standing at the bench, looking up at Kovitsky. Now Kavitsky got down to work. What have you offered him, Mr. Torres? Two to six, Judge. What's your client say, Mr. Sonnenberg? He won't take it, Judge. I talked to him last week, and I talked to him this morning. He wants to go to trial. Why, said Kavitsky. Did you explain to him that he'll be eligible for work release in a year? It's not a bad deal. Well, said Sonnenberg. the problem is, as Mr. Torres knows, my client's a Y.O. That one was for the same thing, armed robbery. And if he pleads guilty to this one, then he's got to serve the time for that one, too. Ah said Kavitsky. What will he take? He'll take one and he'll take one uh, one and a half to four and a half with the sentence for the first one subsumed under this one. What about it, Mr. Torres? The young assistant district attorney sucked in his breath and lowered his eyes and shook his head. I can't do it, Judge. We're talking about armed robbery. Yeah, I know," said Kavitsky. But was he the one with the gun? No," said Torres. Kavitsky lifted his eyes from the faces of Sonnenberg and Torres and looked out at Lockwood. He doesn't look like a bad kid," said Kavitsky, for Torres' benefit. In fact, he looks like a baby. I see these kids in here every day. They're easily led. They live in some kind of shithook neighborhood, and they end up doing stupid things. What's he like, Mr. Sonnenberg? Well, that's about the size of it, Judge, said Sonnenberg. The kid's a follower. He's no brain surgeon, but he's no hard case either. Not in my opinion. This personality profile was evidently supposed to wear Torres down into offering Lockwood a sentence of only one and a third to four years. With his Y.O. conviction, in effect, forgot Y.O. stood for Youthful Offender. Look, Judge, it's no use, Torres said. I can't do it. Two to six is as low as I can go. My office, why don't you call Frank, asked Kavitsky. It's no use, Judge. We're talking about armed robbery. He may not have held a a gun on the victim, but that was because he was going through his pockets with both hands. A 69-year-old man with a stroke walks like this. Torres did a shuffle out in front of the bench, gimping along like an old man with a stroke. Kavitsky smiled. That's a yiddler coming out. Mr. Torres had some of Ted Lewis's chromosomes, and he doesn't even know it. Ted Lewis was Jewish? asked Sonnenberg. Why not? said Kavitsky. He was a comedian, wasn't he? Okay, Mr. Torres, calm down. Torres came back to the bench. Uh, The victim, Mr. Borsellino, says he broke a rib. We're not even charging him with that because the old man never went to see a doctor about the rib. No, two to six is it. Kavitsky thought that over. Did you explain that to your client? Sure, I did, said Sonnenberg. He shrugged and made a face as if to say his client wouldn't listen to reason. He's willing to take his chances. Take his chances, said Kavitsky, but he signed a confession. Seinenberg made the face again and arched his eyebrows. Kavitsky said, let me talk to him. Seinenberg screwed up his lips and rolled his eyes as if to say, good luck. Kavitsky looked up again and stared at Lockwood and stuck his chin up in the air and said, son, come here. The boy stood at the table frozen, not altogether sure the judge was talking to him and not to somebody else. So Kavitsky put on a smile, the smile of the benevolent leader, he who is willing to be patient. And he beckoned with his right hand and said, Come on up here, son, I want to talk to you. The boy Lockwood started walking slowly, warily, up to where Sonnenberg and Torres were standing and looked at Kavitsky. The look he gave him was completely empty. Kavitsky stared back. It was like looking at a small, empty house at night with all the lights out. (laughs) Son, said Kavitsky, you don't look like a bad sort to me. You look like a nice young man. Now I I want you to give yourself a chance. I'll give you a chance, but first you've got to give yourself a chance. Then Kavitsky stared into Lockwood's eyes as if what he was about to say was one of the most important things he was likely to hear in his lifetime. Son, he said, what do you want to get involved in all these fucking robberies for? Lockwood's lips moved, but he fought the impulse to say anything, perhaps the fear that he might incriminate himself. What does your mother say? You live with your mother? Lockwood nodded yes. What does your mother say? She ever hit you upside the head? No, said Lockwood. His eyes appeared misty. Kavitsky took this as a sign that he was making progress. Now, son, he said, do you have a job? Lockwood nodded yes. What do you do? Security guard. (laughs) Um, Security guard, said Kavitsky. He stared off at a blank spot on the wall as if pondering the the implication for society of that answer and then decided to stick to the issue at hand. See, said Kavitsky, you've got a job, you've got a home, you're young, you're a nice-looking, bright young man. You've got a lot going for you. You've got more than most people, but you've got one big problem to overcome. You've been involved in these fucking robberies. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the district attorney has made you an offer of two to six years. If you take that offer and you behave yourself, this will all be behind you in no time, and you'll still be a young man with your whole life ahead of you. If you go to trial and you're convicted, you could get eight to 25. Now, think about that. The district attorney has made you an offer. Lockwood said nothing. Why don't you take it, asked Kavisky. No reason. No reason? Lockwood looked away. He wasn't going to parry words. He was just going to hold tight. Look, son, said Kavitsky, I'm trying to help you. This thing won't go away. You can't just close your eyes and hope it's all going to disappear. Do you understand what I'm saying? Lockwood kept looking down or to the side, always a few inches away from eye contact with the judge. Kavitsky kept moving his head as if to intercept him like a hockey goalie. Look at me, son, do you understand? Lockwood gave in and looked at him. It was a sort of look a firing squad might expect to see. Now, son, think of it this way. It's like having cancer. You know about cancer. There wasn't a glimmer of comprehension of cancer or anything else. Cancer doesn't just go away either. You have to do something about it. If you catch it early while it's small before it spreads through your whole body and takes over your whole life and ruins your life and ends your life, you understand? Ends your life. If you do something about it while it's a, while it's a small problem, if you have the small operation you need, then that's it. Kavitsky threw his hands up in the air and lifted his chin and smiled as if he were the very personification of buoyancy. Now it's the same with the problem you have now. Right now it's a small problem. If you plead guilty and receive a sentence of two to six years and you behave yourself, you'll be eligible for a work release program after one year and full parole after two years. and It'll all be behind you. But if you go to trial and you're found guilty, then your minimum sentence will be eight years. Eight and a third to 25. Eight. You're only 19 now. Eight years. That's almost half as long as you've been on this earth. You want to spend your whole fucking youth in jail? Lockwood averted his eyes. He didn't say one thing or the other. So how about it? asked Kavitsky. Without looking up, Lockwood shook his head no. All right, if you're innocent, I don't want you to plead guilty, no matter what anybody offers you. But you signed a confession. The district attorney has a videotape of you making that confession. What are you going to do about that? I don't know, said Lockwood. What does your attorney say? I don't know. Come on, son, of course you know. You have an excellent attorney. He's one of the best, Mr. Simonberg is. He has a lot of experience. You listen to him. He'll tell you I'm right. This thing isn't going away. Isn't going to go away any more than cancer is going to go away. Lockwood kept looking down. Whatever his lawyer and the judge and the DA had cooked up, he wasn't buying it. Look, son," said Kozitsky. "Talk it over some more with your attorney. Talk it over with your mother. What does your mother say?" Lockwood looked up with live hatred. <coughs> Tears began to form in his eyes. It was a very touchy business talking to these. this until two weeks from today. And son, he said, looking at, uh, to Lock, at Lockwood, you think over what I told you and you confer with Mr. Sonnenberg and you make up your mind, okay? Lockwood gave Kavitsky one last flicker of a glance and nodded yes and walked away from the bench toward the spectator section. Sonnenberg walked with him, with him and said something, but Lockwood made no response. When he passed the railing and saw his buddies getting up from the last bench, Lockwood began pimp rolling. The three of them pimp rolled out, the, out of the courtroom, with Sonnenberg sauntering behind, his head cocked up at a 30-degree angle, out of here, back to the life.
0: Thank you very much for coming, and good night.